Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host, Lois Drachen, as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things disability. Today, we are chatting with Stephanie Dusing, who is joining us from the USA. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful, Lois. Thank you so much for having me as a guest on your show today. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here and to talk about our story and to advocate for people who have cerebral slash cortical visual impairment or CVI. Well, I first came into contact with your story on a Facebook group and I read what you shared on the group and I thought, wow, that's a story that I want to hear more about. So thank you. It's really great to have you with us. And I look forward to chatting to you in the next little while. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. To start off with, whereabouts in the world are you? You're in the USA, but give us a little more detail. Sure. We are in the western suburbs of Chicago. So we're in the Midwest of the United States. And um, yeah, we just live in the suburbs. It's a city I haven't yet had the opportunity to visit, but hopefully I hope you will come out. I would love to see you if you can. It would be so fun to get together. And it would. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we should start this by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you to the podcast today. Well, thank you. So as you kindly mentioned, my name is Stephanie Dusing. And I am the author of Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. I'm a former music teacher. I taught middle school music and chorus for 10 years before taking some time off when my son was born to be a mom. And, and later I started teaching the kinder, kindergarten choir at my church. And I became an early childhood music and movement specialist and a music garden teacher. So I have many years of experience teaching people of all ages to sing. I taught private voice and private piano. And so I have a big background in music. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The reason that I'm here today is because in January of 2017, we discovered that my straight A honor student, genius artist, and water polo playing son, Sebastian, was almost completely blind. And no one knew, not even Sebastian himself. He was 15 and just about to enroll in driver's ed, and we were just completely devastated. It was terrifying. I had absolutely no idea how this could be possible. And so to make a long story short, to answer your question of who I am, I am a music teacher who actually made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. My son, Sebastian, is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means that he quite literally sees with words, just like a bat sees with sound. 
So before I had um, cataract surgery last year, I used to wear glasses all the time. And so my characteristics were tall, blonde glasses. And when my son thinks those words to himself, he literally gets a momentary glimpse of what I look like. Sebastian spent six hours in the fMRI for the Harvard CVI Neuroplasticity Research Study. And Dr. Latvi Maribet, who is an associate professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School and associate scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, he captured Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision verbally. And he published a paper on that last fall in Neurobiologia in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who was the wonderful director of optometrics at the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind. So this is a true story. Having read Eyeless Mind, one of the moments in the book that it, it really has stuck with me is the process by which you discovered that Sebastian's way of processing wasn't quite the same. Can you share exactly. a bit about that moment with us? I would be happy to, yes. So you can imagine that discovering that your child sees with words wasn't something that we figured out overnight. In fact, as I said, we didn't even know my son was blind. So in January of 2017, we were going through old photos. I am one of those moms who quite literally made my son a baby book, and I'm not crafty at all. And so I never made him another scrapbook. And it had been years since we had gone through his old baby pictures. And we just happened to be doing that. We were looking at old photos and I was narrating to Sebastian who was in the pictures because there were a lot of photos of him with people that he wouldn't remember or he hadn't seen in many, many years. Mm -hmm. So there was like pictures of him with his cousins from Canada that he hadn't seen for seven or eight years. And there was pictures of him, you know, with our neighbors in the town we used to live in when he was a baby that we hadn't seen in forever. So I was just explaining who was in each picture. And we had been doing this for about half an hour or so. And we had gone through the baby pictures and kind of graduated into like the toddler preschool years. So my son had been looking at pictures of his own face as a young child for half an hour. And all of a sudden, a very adorable picture of him popped up on the computer screen. And it was so cute. And I just said, oh, look, who's that? And there was crickets. And he just looked at that picture. And finally, he said, well, how would I know? And I, the hairs on my arms and my back still stand up when I say that, because at that time in 2017, I had never heard of CDI, which is cerebral or cortical visual impairment. I had never heard of prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. And I didn't know that it was possible for a human being to be face blind. And so I was like, that's not typical usually you can recognize your face, right? And so I started quizzing him and I was pointing to pictures of myself and my husband and other familiar, very familiar people, you know, and they were all just, you know, 10, 12, 15 years younger and thinner and less gray hair, but still we were obviously us, right? And my son was guessing. He was guessing who we were and not knowing. (laughs) I I knew right then, I'm like, this, there's something wrong, you know? And I wasn't horribly concerned, but it was very strange. You know, and I thought, well, this is odd. So I immediately that night started researching and it took some time. I was on my phone looking up facial recognition and all kinds of facial recognition software information came up. And that was not what I was looking for. I was like problems with facial recognition. And back in 2017, there was just so little information about this. 
I finally found prosopagnosia, which is the inability to recognize faces. And I was incorrectly informed because back then it was common. They said it was very, very rare. And we know now that that's not true at all, but that's what I was told in 2017 in my research, you know, on the internet. And so I'm like, oh, he's got this real condition and it's just the inability to recognize faces. And it was odd at the time because my son is actually extremely artistic and he draws and paints faces with photographic realism when he wants to. And so it was just astonishing to discover that he couldn't recognize faces. And so that was the very first discovery. And then the very next day we discovered that my son had taught himself to count his steps and turns as a toddler and had been navigating our own home, our small neighborhood, and also his extremely architecturally complex high school that way. And we had had absolutely no idea that that's how he was navigating. And then my, oh, this is odd, but interesting feeling became terror because my son was extremely gifted. He always planned he was going to go off to college. He was looking forward to going off to college. And now I didn't know if he would ever be able to live independently because I knew I couldn't send him out into the world because I knew that he couldn't recognize his surroundings, that he was literally blind to his surroundings. And that's why he was navigating that way. So that's when I, the next day, made an appointment with his neuropsychologist who had just done a full neuropsych evaluation on him for a completely, totally unrelated concussion that he'd had back in the fall. And um, and we went into this doctor and I was using the correct medical terminology from that very first appointment to describe my son's symptoms. And this doctor said, I can't help you and I don't know anyone who can. Good luck with that. And he dropped us. And we bounced from doctor to doctor to doctor and we saw optometrists and neurooptometrists, ophthalmologists, neurooptometrists, neurologists, neuropsychologists. We saw a neuropsychiatrist. We just traveled across the United States looking for anyone who could diagnose my son and provide a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training services with a white cane. My son, there's no cure for CVI. So we weren't asking for medication. We weren't asking for unnecessary surgery. My son needed to learn how to navigate with using technology. And it, he's smart. We knew he could do this in just a few weeks. And we were actually labeled crazy by the medical establishment. And I was labeled a Munchausen mom because no one believed that there was anything wrong with my son. So over the course of those months, as we were trying to get a diagnosis for my son, we continued to learn more and more about my son's visual processing. And that is how we, over time, figured out that he's actually seeing with words. My son has spent thousands of hours drawing and painting. It's a chosen activity that he fell in love with in infancy as a baby, painting in the bathtub. And he learned to memorize all of the characteristics of everything that we see around us because he, the only way he can see them is to think the way that we describe them. Mm. He can't see them though the way that we do because I'll tell you a little bit about cerebral visual impairment. That is a brain-based vision impairment that's entirely different from ocular blindness. 
Ocular blindness is where the eye and the optic nerve are damaged. And this is where typically sighted people, they tend to think the stereotype of everything being dark, that that's what being blind means. Well, that idea of blindness is a hundred years old and it's so outdated. In fact, we know now that the vast, well, the majority actually of children who are diagnosed in the U.S. now with vision problems actually have cerebral slash cortical visual impairment and they commonly have normal acuity. Their eye and their optic nerve are perfectly fine, but it's a brain-based vision impairment and different areas of the brain process different parts of our vision. So we have what we call the dorsal stream and the ventral stream of our visual processing. When light comes in through the eyes, the eyes literally don't see anything at all. It takes about a tenth of a second for the light to be converted into a signal that travels through the optic nerve through the lateral geniculate nuclei in the center of the brain and then back to the back of the brain. And then vision starts to happen. We literally see with our brains and not with our eyes. And so after that tenth of a second, when the the signal reaches the back of the brain, then the brain begins to perceive sight. And motion processing happens in the back of the brain. Facial recognition happens over in the right um, fusiform gyrus of the brain, which is if you touch your right ear and it's a little bit above and behind your right ear, that's where your right fusiform gyrus is. And so depending on where a child or an adult has brain damage, that affects what and how they can see. And so there are actually people alive right now who have lost all ability to perceive light, color, everything except motion. And if you have ever listened to NPR, there's a wonderful article about, um, it's called The Blind Woman Who Saw Rain. And she had a stroke and lost all her vision except the ability to perceive motion. And she noticed that she was able to see the motion of the rain as it came down, but not the rain itself, not the window, nothing else, just sense of motion. And again, same thing when her daughter was skipping ahead of her, she could see the motion of her daughter's ponytail as it swang back and forth. So different people have different experiences of their vision depending on where the brain damage is located. And so my son has no ability to recognize faces. We figured that out right away when he was 15. He has no ability to recognize places. So he has prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. He has topographical agnosia, which is the inability to recognize um, the surroundings, the environment. He also has object agnosia. So he cannot recognize objects. And he also has something called simultanagnosia. And so if you think about, for example, tunnel vision, most most of typically sighted people have heard of tunnel vision and they can imagine their vision being all black with maybe a center circle where there's, you know, you can see through that circle in the center. Well, simultanagnosia is different from that. In my son's case, what he experiences is the surrounding, his visual fields are full, He passes every visual field exam because he can perceive light and color and motion in the whole surrounding area, but it's so blurry. It's just like a fog of blurry colors and vague blurry shapes. And in the very center of this full field of blur, blurry color and shapes, there's a teeny tiny patch of acuity in the center through which my son, the only things that he can see the way that typically sighted people do are words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. 
And so in that tiny patch in that center, he can read. And so my blind son passed every vision test every single year because he can read and he has normal acuity. It is actually common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity and they commonly pass vision tests because our optometric exams are decades out of date. If I can just interject here, what I'm hearing then is that CVI, no, not CVI, but it's sight is more about the interpretation of the information. Correct. Not as much as, or not only what is taken in through the eye. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, if the eyes and optic nerves aren't working and the light can't get through to the brain, then the brain can't interpret anything. Yes. So that's yes. where, you know, we have this idea that, you know, blindness is everything being dark, which we know actually isn't true for ocular blindness. Many ocularly blind people actually perceive some light, right? So yes. that's a stereotype. Yes. Um, but that's what uh, truly what a lot of a lot of typically sighted people think blindness is. Where It is, dark. yeah. And that's not correct either. So, um, yes, I actually was at a um, lovely um, class that was taught by Dr. Arvind Channa and Dr. Um, Gordon Dutton not too long ago, just a few weeks ago. And Dr. Arvind Channa talked about how it takes about a tenth of a second after light enters the eye it ha- before there's any conscious perception of sight. We do not see with our eyes. Our eyes are literally light collectors. They collect the light. They transmit it into a signal that transmits through the optic nerve. And then a tenth of a second after that happens, conscious perception of sight happens when that signal hits the brain. So the the eyes don't see. They collect light and pass it to the brain. All of the seeing happens in the brain. There's no conscious perception of sight within the eye. Yes. nothing happens and so yeah. yeah we tend to think well we see with our eyes no we <laughs> see with our brains. and if the brain has brain damage one of the reasons it's been so difficult to get a diagnostic code for cbi is because wherever the brain damage is it changes the, the symptoms for people mm. and there's many commonalities you know people who have cbi frequently have difficulty looking at visually complex scenes so for example looking at that children's book called where's waldo can it's just horrible for many people who have cbi right because it's just i don't know if you're familiar with that book but it's this little figure that is always lost in the mm. sea of other things and you have to try to find him you know and it's, it's like a stick and find for a little cartoon guy, you know, and it's jigsaw puzzles and things like that can be challenging for people who have CBI or impossible. You know, that complexity is really difficult. But then why, why do you think it was that, or why do you think it is that doctors struggle so much in diagnosing CBI? Is, and is that changing? Well, that's a fabulous question, Lois. Thank you so much for asking it. So the reason they have trouble diagnosing it is because it doesn't have a diagnostic code. And so for that reason, doctors receive no training in it whatsoever. And to be honest, I mean, the doctors we saw, I mean, we were repeatedly verbally and emotionally abused because we were labeled crazy because they had never heard of it. They knew absolutely nothing about it. Or if they had a little tiny bit of knowledge about it, what they knew was wrong. 
we were repeatedly told that face blindness was so incredibly rare. There was no possible way my son could have it. And this is just not true. Face blindness is common. There was a recent study. um, They said that one in 30 students in a regular ed classroom have symptoms of CVI, which makes it more prevalent than autism. So this is a huge public health crisis. And to answer your question, yes, things are changing. Thank goodness. Since we went public with our story, um, we have seen huge progress, mainly through um, the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity, the efforts of Dr. Latfi Mirabet to um, document how many people actually have CBI in the U.S. Our insurance system here makes everything challenging because everybody has different insurance. And so there's no national way of collecting data on who has CVI because there's no one collecting that. And so they've he's worked very hard on that so that they can actually document how many people have it. And it is now shown that it is by far the largest cause of blindness and visual impairment in the U.S. and other developed nations because we have all of these little preemie babies Our NICU care has improved so much that all of these tiny, tiny preemie babies that did not used to survive, thankfully are now surviving, but they have brain bleeds and they have cerebral palsy and they have epilepsy and they have CVI. And so I'd also like to mention that the Perkins School for the Blind has done just a tremendous job and Dr. Barry Cran and his efforts to educate optometrists and he's been amazing. So this year, just a, I think, was it last two weeks ago? I think, I think it was two weeks ago. The Perkins School for the Blind had a collaboration for change CDI conference, and the keynote speaker for the conference was Dr. Michael Chiang, who is the head of um, the National Eye Institute here in the United States, which is a division of the National Institute of Health. Because this year, for the very first time, our National Institute of Health has finally recognized CVI as an area of concern. And so that means that it is actually being funded for research for the very first time. And so with more research, we are really hopeful that we will have a diagnostic code for CVI soon. Well, Stephanie, a couple of times during the interview, you've mentioned about the importance of orientation and mobility training. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it's helping your son to navigate his world? Thank you so much for asking this very important question. So orientation and mobility training is training that teaches people how to get around when they can't see or when they can't see enough to safely navigate. And, um, My son has no ability to recognize his surroundings. That's called topographical agnosia. And that means that every time he walks into a room, no matter how many times he's been there, it never looks familiar to him because he literally cannot see it. So he's not forming visual landmarks like typically sighted people do. And that means that he has no way to create a mental map of the world because he can't picture where, for example, the bathroom is compared to where the family room is or where his house is compared to his school because he has never seen it. And so there's no way to make that mental map. And so people who have topographical topographical agnosia, they may have normal acuity and be able to read like my son can and be a straight A honor student and still need a small amount of assistance in getting around just 
to help them live safely and independently. And this is very important because people who have this disability, they suffer trauma akin to torture. My son was traumatized from years of going without this because it is terrifying to be blind in a world where nobody knows that you're blind and no one is providing you the simple skills and things that you could use to help and make everything less frightening. And I think it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what it's like to be blind and have absolutely no one else around you know you're blind. And this is what happened to my son who could have been quickly and easily screened as a a three-year-old. Honestly, common symptoms of CVI are easy to screen for. And it took me less than a minute in my kitchen. Once I knew what my son's symptoms were, what I knew what simultanagnosia was, I was able to create simple assessments in my kitchen in under a minute. And I'm a music teacher. So this could have been done as a three-year-old with my son. It could have been done in any of his vision assessments to, you know, just a screening, you know, to see if he had CVI and then refer him for further testing, but it never happened. And so my son suffered really serious trauma. And I know many people in the CVI community now, many adults and teens, tweens, and they have all gone for years, sometimes decades without orientation and mobility training and without a diagnosis. And it is terrifying for them and traumatizing for them. And so this is a very simple thing that could be done that could vastly improve the quality of many people's lives. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not medication. It's not surgery. It's just help. How does, right? how does the, the orientation and mobility assist someone with CVI? So my son had two things. He had orientation and mobility training with the white cane through leader dogs for the blind. But before he had that, and I'm going to say this, it was so wonderful for him. He also had occupational therapy for navigation. And so he saw an occupational therapist for several months. And we went three times a week into downtown Chicago, which was, you know, we don't live close. And, but it was so important for his safety And his occupational therapist taught my son how to navigate the city and to use all public transportation using his smartphone. Because my son has the ability to read, although he has very severe CVI. Not all people who have CVI can read. This just happens to be that the area of the brain that recognizes symbols in my son's brain wasn't damaged. So although he can't see faces and objects and places, he can see words and letters and numbers. And so he lucked out because he has visual access to numeracy and literacy. But many people who have CVI are not so fortunate and they can't recognize that and they might need Braille or some other tactile form of learning. But to get back to the orientation and mobility, because my son can read, he has the ability to use the smartphone and he can use Google Maps to navigate. And so for about four months, we went downtown three times a week for his occupational therapist to teach my son how to get around the city using public transportation. And we practiced before or after every single appointment. My son and I went just ourselves and I made him take me around the city on the bus on the subway so that he could have that opportunity to practice while we were there, all the skills that he learned in his session with his occupational therapist. During that time, one of the days that we were out, it was about 90 degrees and we were walking about three miles in this, you know, get going from place to place and getting to the bus stops and things. 
And my son became entirely blind during this time. And that is something called visual tiring. It is exactly the same thing, the same phenomena as when a typically sighted person faints and blacks out. And so I've only ever fainted once, but I remember it vividly. And what happened was my vision literally blacked out and it comes from the edges and it just comes in swoop and then you lose consciousness. And people who have CVI have much less visual processing power than typically sighted people do. And so they're much more susceptible to changes in their blood pressure. Blacking out with fainting is a, it's a happens because of changes in your blood pressure. And people who have CVI, they experience this regularly and they notice fluctuations in their vision from blood pressure changes that are caused by overheating, overtiring, overexertion, um, overexcitement, over, you know, any type of illness can do that to you. Yeah. And so it's actually a very common and well-documented symptom of CVI to go and entirely lose your vision or have it become much worse, totally randomly and without any control. So my son, we were out 90 degrees walking three miles and suddenly he became completely and totally unable to read his phone, which meant that now my son is completely blind and we're in the middle of downtown Chicago with the traffic and the buses and the people. And I am suddenly aware that just getting occupational therapy for my son for navigation is not enough. Now I know he's completely blind randomly because it's so hot. And now I know he needs to have orientation and mobility training with a white cane for the times, the random times when he goes from being almost completely blind to being completely blind. And so we were fortunate to have help finally from um, um, the Leader Dogs for the Blind organization, and they were fabulous. They flew my son out, all expenses paid to Michigan, and they worked with him for a whole week and just did white cane training with them. And they actually blindfolded him. I asked specifically, can you work with him blindfolded so that he's prepared for the time when he has no vision at all? Because, you know, we he has no control over when that might happen to him, you know? So that was really terrifying to make sure that he is safe in all circumstances. Yes. If that makes sense. It makes total sense, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. We had a very wonderful experience this past December because part of the reason we didn't know that my son was blind is because he has something called blind sight. Blind sight is something we have known about since World War I. We've known about CVI since World War I when all the um, soldiers came back with bullet wounds to the head and they lost vision. And so we've known about something called blind sight as a symptom of CVI or one aspect of CVI for a hundred years. And blind sight is the ability to walk through space without bumping into things, yes. despite being blind or almost completely blind. Yes. And my son has blind sight. And so he, you can take him and put him into any unfamiliar place that could be just loaded with obstacles and he can walk through the entire place and not bump into anything because it's like, I think it's a function of motion perception as he's walking through the space. He says it's like he has like a warning system, like he has an awareness that there is something in his path, although he doesn't know what it is. So he knows to avoid it. It could also be, a, and 
element of something called echolocation, that he's using sound or sensation to help navigate. It's it's complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People who have CVI use every tool at their disposal. Yeah, but but blindsight is a documented phenomena that's been studied for quite some time, and that's what my son has. And so my son was actually on the water polo team. You know, he got A's in gym class every quarter. I'm kind of a C student in gym. <laughs> so here I have this super athletic kid who took the training wheels off his bike when he was four and was on the diving team and on the water polo team. And we had just no idea, you know, that he was using motion to detect the movement of the ball and, you know, all the different things that he was doing. So, yeah, CVI can be an entirely invisible disability. And there's just no possible way to tell that my son is almost completely blind academically, physically or socially. So we never had a single person suggest to us that there was anything wrong with my son, any type of disability ever. Until we actually, when you and this is really important. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to say it's really important for families who are listening and doctors and medical professionals to know, although my son can't recognize his face or anybody else's face. We have photos of my blind son making regular, consistent eye contact from his earliest days. My son has something called affective blindsight, which means that he responds and can recognize facial expressions, even though he can't recognize the faces themselves. And that's a big motivator for an infant to look at faces if they can see the facial expression. And so it's really important for doctors and teachers and and parents to know that just because a child is looking at your face doesn't mean that they are seeing your face. And that's a big stereotype about CVI, you know, because it's true. Many people who have CVI don't look at faces. They find it uncomfortable because they can't see it. It looks distorted. And so it's a common symptom of CVI to not look at faces. But that doesn't mean that the opposite is true that just because a child is looking at faces doesn't mean that they see what typically sighted people see. And I'd also like to address another common myth about CDI, and that is the use of visual guidance of reach. My son had all normal developmental milestones, and we have photos of my blind son using visual guidance of reach at a developmentally appropriate age. And that's where you look at something and then you reach for it while you're looking. And my son is almost completely blind, and we have photos of him doing this. And so that's another common myth. People think often that if a child child is totally neurotypical, if they have if they're looking at faces, if they're using visual guidance of reach, that well then their vision's fine. Well, that is just a myth. Children can have very severe CVI. Adults can have very severe CVI and have had normal developmental milestones. And my belief is. Because I am a music teacher, my son actually received intensive music and movement therapy from birth and just for fun, because that's what I do. But there are more than two decades of research demonstrating that music and movement in early childhood have tremendous neurological benefits. There are more than two decades of research showing that music and movement in early childhood before the age of seven, high quality music and movement experiences create better balance, coordination, fine and gross motor skills, auditory discrimination, proprioception, which is knowledge of where your body is in space, which comes in handy when you're blind, um, language development, 
reading and math ability, and IQ. And there is actually tons of evidence showing that music and movement are the only activities known to science that activate the visual, the motor, and the auditory cortices of the brain at the same time, which causes more and better connections between the right and the left sides of the brain. Music and movement are the only activities known to science that cause the right and left sides of the brain that forces them to work together through the corpus callosum in a way that there is no other activity that can mimic that. And so my son had intensive music and movement therapy from birth just because I thought music was fun. And so I danced with him and rocked him and bounced him and sang to him and did finger plays and body awareness rhymes and throughout the day, every day, just for fun. If he was tired at nap time, he got a lullaby and was rocked. If it was playtime and he was happy and, you know, there was a good song and we danced around the house, you know, so it wasn't like I sat down with him for half an hour every day and said, okay, now it's music time. <laughs> it was just, oh, it's time to change your diaper. Let's do a little, you know, body awareness rhyme on the changing table, you know, just because it's fun and it, you know, it entertains him, you know, and I did not know at that time that my son had had a brain injury. And so I treated him like he was a completely neurotypical healthy baby that I thought he was. And he had all normal developmental milestones. We know the vast majority of children who have CVI are severely developmentally delayed. My son is almost completely blind. He should also have been developmentally delayed, but he was not. And so the only thing I know is that two decades of research, more than two decades now, actually, showing that music and movement have just enormous benefits physically, emotionally, socially, and intellectually. Which is really useful for people to know. And I think as a, as a general rule, I think that is a, a great way as well of connecting and bonding with a young child. So I Oh, think absolutely. And especially for these tiny babies that have, you know, cerebral palsy and, and all the complications. I mean, I'm a strong advocate for music for all children. But when you have, you know, all of these complications and all the therapies going on it's yeah. so important to have time to just love and enjoy your baby and to play with your baby and I think think of no better way to learn to interact with the baby than through music yes. because it's just it's a pleasure and a joy yeah. you know and it, it's it can be a very calm quiet relaxing pleasure with a, a lullaby and it can be an exciting and up beat fun thing to do with a upbeat dance, you know, as you twirl around your living room or whatever, you know, but yeah, I mean, when, when your lives are filled with all of these therapies and health issues and scary things that go on, music can really help you to connect with your baby just to connect one-on-one. -on -one. Well, and so I, I really think it's important for families to know about this. The first thing I did after losing my sight was to start playing music. I joined I know. a rock band. Yes, I <laughs> so love that. I, I would that. definitely agree on that on that statement. Stephanie, if people would like to contact you to find out about your book and more about your story or about the work that you're doing as a CVI advocate, how can they contact you? Well, you can look me up on my website. There's a contact me form there. And um, my name is Stephanie Dusing, D-U-E-S-I-N-G. And so if you just Google that or my book, Eyeless Mind, that will also take you to my website. So you can reach me through there. 
And um, I'd like to give some resources too for families. There are, I'll put some, um, I'll send an email to you with some show notes, if that's okay, with resources to families for more information, with factual information about CBI. That would really be great. I think it's important for us to give people more understanding and place to go to, to just read and learn more. Mm -hmm. So thank you for saying that. And we will definitely include those in the show notes. Yes. And I'll just mention right now, one of the best sources of factual information about CVI is um, CVI Scotland. And if you just go to www.cviscotland.org, that's an amazing source with very parent friendly. They have videos of what it's like to see through the eyes of someone who has CVI that are very helpful for typically sighted people to watch to get an idea of what it's like, common symptoms of CVI. It's very comprehensive and it is medically accurate, which is important. Yeah. And another great source of information here in the U.S., um, but is available to anybody uh, is the Perkins School for the Blind has a wonderful CVI now Um website. So that's just a great, great resource for families, but I'll put links. I'll get, I'll send you links. Thank you. That'd be great. As a final question, what advice would you give to parents to who, who, who might be concerned that their child might have CVI? How could they identify that? What sort of symptoms should they be looking for? That is a fabulous question. So in our case, as I said, my son's CVI is an entirely invisible disability. He's very much like Dr. Oliver Sacks, the famous neuropsychologist who wrote the book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Dr. Sachs also had topographical agnosia and also prosopagnosia. So he couldn't recognize faces or places just like my son. And he also appeared to be totally typically sighted. He also suffered terribly from not getting orientation and mobility training. He felt he missed out on life because it was, you know, navigating is terrifying when you're blind and you don't yes. have help. So um, yeah, it can be entirely invisible. And so I would say. The only symptom that we had that there might be something wrong with my son was what appeared to be mostly mild and totally unexplainable anxiety. My son cried every day at drop-off for preschool, for two years of preschool and most of kindergarten as well, despite the fact that he was on the older side of the age group and was socially engaged. He had his best friends in all of those classes who he loved. He loved his teachers and he was extremely academically successful. And so it made absolutely no sense why my socially outgoing, academic, thriving, healthy, happy child suddenly turned into this clinging, terrified baby, you know, a little one at, at drop-off. And when I raised concerns with his teachers and his doctor, I was told, oh, some kids just do that. We worry about the ones who can't settle down. Well, my son always settled down quickly. And so he completely flew under the radar. And as I said, you know, he could have been screened as a three-year-old. <laughs> the screening is it's not that hard. It really isn't. 
And it's just heartbreaking to me, you know, because we all we had was basically separation anxiety. And as he got older, you know, what appeared what appeared to be mild anxiety. And we know now his anxiety wasn't mild. It was huge because he was blind and no one knew, but he covered it up because what my son learned is that as a little child crying, crying is communication. Yes. When a child is crying, that they are telling you there's something wrong. And they, there's all children who are born with CVI, they assume that their vision is typical. They assume that everybody sees what they see because they've never, they have nothing else to compare it to. Yeah. So they cannot say, well, I can't see because to them, they are seeing and they think you see what they see. And so they cannot tell you, oh, my vision is bad. All they can do is just say, I'm scared. And they do that by crying. And what happened was my son learned at a very early age that telling adults that he was scared did not help. And so he just stopped talking about it. He stopped crying about it. He didn't get over it. His vision didn't get cured. He didn't grow out of it. He stayed blind. He just stopped telling everybody around him that he was afraid. And he tells us that he knew early on that he was more anxious about going places than everybody around him. And he had absolutely no idea why. But he was aware from a young age that he was afraid to go places. And everybody else around him was like acting like it was no big deal. And he didn't know why. And that's really tragic, I think, that he had to go through that. And the not just him, but that we have tens of thousands of people here in the U.S. whose symptoms of CVI are fairly obvious. And even the ones with obvious CVI, they are struggling to get a diagnosis and services as well, even with obvious symptoms. So some of the obvious symptoms parents might want to look for, I'll tell you, CVI is routinely misdiagnosed as autism because children who have CVI frequently don't look at faces. They frequently don't look directly at things. They might look at things from the side. They can have issues with visual guidance of reach. Not <laughs> means that all children who have CBI have issues with visual guidance of reach. Obviously, my son did not, you know. So there's so many things. People who have lower visual field loss from CBI, which is where you can't, for example, see anything beneath your nose. You've never seen your feet while you're walking. You've never seen the stairs while you go down them. People who have lower visual field loss are frequently clumsy. They appear to be clumsy because they can't see the ground and they, they trip over things and they, they bump into things. So these are things to watch for as well. That's very useful. Thank you, Stephanie. Stephanie, I want to commend you and your family for the work that you've done, the, the, the journey that you've been through together. Thank you. In identifying and and working to raise awareness about CVI through the lived experience that you and Sebastian have had. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about it and so honestly share your experiences with us today. It has been absolutely amazing having you with us on a different way of seeing. In the show notes, you'll find several links. Firstly, if you're interested in finding out more information about 
cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, you'll find the links there. Likewise, if you'd like to reach out to Stephanie Dusing or to buy a copy of her book, Eyeless Mind. Talking about books, my own book, A Different Way of Seeing, A Blind Woman's Journey of Living an Ordinary Life in an Extraordinary Way, is available through my website, loisdrochen.com, or on Amazon. It's also now available as an audiobook on audible.com or several other of the audiobook outlets. And I'd really love for you to buy a copy of that and learn a little bit more about my journey. It's been really great to have you with us on this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We would love to connect with you. So find Lois at loisdrachen.com or Facebook, Lois Strachan Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachan using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Jassy. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently. Thank you.